So tonight uh, I want to talk about this practice, mindfulness, which is what we do on Wednesday nights. But I want to talk about just different ways of approaching mindfulness as a practice. Um, there are a lot of different reasons why I think we would want to practice meditation, mindfulness meditation, whatever you want to call it, vipassana insight meditation. Um, one is focused attention. One of the reasons why mindfulness is so fruitful is because we can learn to break our addiction to the urgency of the mind. You may notice that when we meditate, the mind has a lot to say and has a hard time giving it up. You know, the mind almost sometimes has this kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of the stories that it's telling me are about my life. And so when I'm sitting here and I'm meditating, it's really hard to make that decision, just one moment, that decision to tell the mind not right now. You know, to almost have that kind of boundary with our own thinking. That's a huge benefit of mindfulness is just that skill of breaking the addiction to the thinking mind learning how to identify that I don't have to obey all of the urgent stories that my mind's telling me, that I can learn how to put that down. And that also helps us to develop when we focus our attention. I connect with my breath as I breathe in and breathe out, or I connect with the sounds, or I connect with the feeling of my body. I can start to notice those moments when the mind wants to kind of come back in the door. It's like knocking at the door. I put it outside and it says, hey, I got a bunch of shit to talk about, right? And they call that, in, or the Buddha calls that protective awareness of being able to actually, with focused attention, protect what comes in and out of the mind. Not that we can completely get rid of thoughts. That's never going to happen, <laughs> right? But that we can have that ability to find and place our attention where we would like it to be in a moment of experience. Just one moment at a time, I can find my attention somewhere and I can place it. And then when the thinking mind comes in and knocks on the door, I can say, not right now, right? I can have that protective awareness. And also, as we develop focused attention, we establish some calm and some tranquility. They call this the quality of mind of samadhi. Samadhi means unification of mind or collectedness of awareness. This is unfortunately what a lot of th people think mindfulness is about or meditation in general. And that's because most meditation practices out of the Buddhist context are solely samadhi focused practices, meaning that you have an object, a mantra, or a guided imagery, or in our practice, we use the breath, or the body, or sound, and that when you focus your attention over time, your attention's less scattered. You actually can get stronger at that skill of focused attention, which was relieving to hear, because when I first started practicing meditation, I was like, I totally can't do this shit. <laughs> I have no clue how to focus. And it was almost actually triggering for me because I automatically thought about all the times my teachers would tell me in school to pay attention and pay attention and pay attention. And I just resigned to this idea. And then I was diagnosed with ADD and I just resigned to this idea, I can't do that. So meditation's not for me. You know, but the thing that I failed to see is that mindfulness helps us to practice focused attention and that we can strengthen that mental faculty. 
And so the benefit of that is that as I find my mind wandering during the meditation and I'm able to observe the thought, which we'll talk about in a second, but I'm able to return my attention back to my anchor, the breath, the sound, the body. Each moment I make that decision to come back, I'm strengthening that focus. It's like a muscle. And the benefit is we get to pick the fruit of that over some time. I think anyone that's practiced mindfulness for a period of time would say, yeah, my mind is less scattered. I get less caught up in uh, the obsessions, the rumination, the worry. Of course, it's still there. But in general, I have a little bit more of an ability to focus. I know for me, I used to, when I was in undergraduate school, I hadn't yet found this practice and I used to my access to my attention was so poor and I don't say that judgmentally it just was <laughs> that I would read a sentence that I wrote and I'd have to reread the sentence to start the next sentence I'd have to reread the first sentence to read the first couple words of the second sentence to try to finish the second sentence and I would write an entire paper rereading every sentence because I couldn't hold in my mind what I was talking about. I was so distracted. And I know for me, just seeing when I sit down and I prepare things, I have a lot more focused attention, a lot more of that ability. So that's one of the reasons we would mindfulness. And you see this in our popular world, sports teams. Uh, I think the Lakers are one of the basketball teams practices mindfulness i think probably all of them do in some form or fashion now have this someone come in i'd love to have that job <laughs> just the paycheck alone i'm sure would be pretty nice focused attention you know in in that arena athletics also in our technology industry we can be more productive more efficient and so Sometimes if you're entering mindfulness from this world, meaning from Buddhism, like Buddhist teachers can kind of poo-poo on the technology, the focused attention benefit. But I, I think it's a little irresponsible to do that because as we're more focused, maybe we're more aware. And as we're more aware, maybe we are less harmful and more considerate and look at our motivations behind our actions. So I think it's great. If you're going to be focused, use mindfulness to get focused, go for it. And so those industries definitely have that reason for practicing. And then there's these, this other reason, which is what I just call the observer objective perspective. And this is just that mindfulness helps us to maintain more of an objective vantage point with our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. We can start to learn how to be an unbiased observer of our direct experience. You know, we would call this introspective awareness, the ability to look into your own mind and to know your mental state or your attitude of mind, to know the mental activity that's currently or presently you're thinking in your mind, to have that ability to kind of instead of act out our emotions to become aware or, or identify our emotions. You know, oh, I am uh, feeling a lot of fear right now instead of, oh my God, I got to do this thing or get this done. Or that's being in the fear versus being aware of the fear. You know, so that's a huge benefit. And I think that's probably one of the most marketable benefits of mindfulness for me. That's what I've gotten so much 
of the benefit of this practice from. It's just being able to look in my mind and learn to simply observe my present attitude, emotion, the physical experience that I'm in. And the reason why this is so powerful for me is that two things is one, when I'm able to become aware of my mental state or attitude or mood or emotion, it loses its power. You know, so in the mythological story of the Buddha, there's this guy named Mara, this deity that would come and visit the Buddha and he would, uh, and it's really that Mara was the manifestation of the Buddha's greedy, hateful, delusional, confused mind. It's the mind that we all have, right? And Mara would come and visit the Buddha throughout his life. And what the Buddha would do is he wouldn't banish Mara. He wouldn't get mad or upset at Mara, or he wouldn't have this attitude that it wasn't supposed to be that way. Instead, he would say, I see you, Mara. And so in seeing the neurotic, controlling, self-critical, judgmental, harsh mind, it loses its power a little bit. And this is the basis of, if any of y'all have listened to, I believe it's Tara Brock, maybe Michelle McDonald started, The Rain, Recognize, Allow, Investigate, Nurture, that type of uh, way of using mindfulness as an observer to notice the experience we're in, to feel and to uh, understand the experience we're in so we can better help ourselves through the experience instead of getting overwhelmed by it. And so that's that losing its power through recognition. The other benefit of this observer perspective is it allows us to kind of, over time, to not identify so much with our thoughts. It's like as I sit, as I meditate, I see my mind do the same thing over and over and over again. And it starts to become less personal. It's like that's just what the mind does. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's not anyone's fault to stop kind of trying to f do the blame game or find the cause of all of it to get into this philosophical debate or evaluation about what am I doing wrong or what are these people doing wrong? But we can just see that that's just what the mind does when it's afraid. It does that. Or that's just what the mind does when uh, it feels sadness, loneliness. It tells that story. You guys know the loneliness stories? I have a lot of those, you know, so we just get to know the mind. It's almost like we develop an inner uh, map. Oh, I know what my mind does when I feel lonely. It does that thing that it always does. And it becomes less personal. So that's another benefit. And then there's the reason to practice mindfulness is for the development of, you could call it radical acceptance or balance, or the word we use a lot of times is equanimity. Equanimity is an empowering factor of mindfulness. And this is very important. I think it's easy to overlook. It's the understanding that in this moment, my freedom depends upon how I relate to this moments of experience, not the experience that I'm in. Right, so my freedom in every moment of experience is held in my relationship to that experience, how I relate to it. And I use this quote a lot, and I think it's good, repetition's good. Viktor Frankl said that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies your power to choose your response. And in your choice lies your freedom. So mindfulness gives us, empowers us to make more 
choices and this understanding that what am I experiencing and how do I want to relate to it? It gives us that space in which we can relate. Also, not the most uh, probably easily marketable skill of mindfulness is distress tolerance. Perhaps for me, one of the most important though that I've developed through meditation is just the ability to sit. What we just did, if you're new, is insane. Sitting in meditation for 30 minutes, 25 minutes, is a long time to sit still. Most people never do that in their entire life. Most people, just think about that. And I don't say that to compare, but that's like a rare thing is to actually sit with no phone or no talking or no podcast or no, for the intention of just sitting for 30 minutes. So that is, you know, huge. And to sit with the restlessness of the mind or the physical discomfort. And one of the things that we can learn is we can learn how to sit with some of that discomfort and we can learn how to grow or to build our level of tolerance with it. And we do that very simply just sitting with it. And it's always that kind of struggle. It's like, well, how do I... How do I work with restlessness in meditation? It's so hard being a meditation teacher because it's like you never really have any answer. The answer is, well, just notice the restlessness and sit with the restlessness. <laughs> you know, because over time we acclimate to our physical discomfort. You warm up to it. It's like getting in a pool. Initially it's a little cold, you know, but you kind of get in and you warm up. equanimity our freedom lies in how we respond to our current conditions not the conditions themselves and also we have this and develop this ability to be with our present experience without having to push or pull on it so these are a few reasons focused attention the observer perspective equanimity you know but the aim of the buddhist teaching and mindfulness is something especially that's left out a lot in our secular world. When we teach mindfulness in schools and when we teach mindfulness even in prisons and in uh, you know, our tech industry and athletics, the deeper interest of what the Buddha, the reason why the Buddha taught mindfulness is often left out, which is for the purpose of developing liberating insight. Mindfulness is interested really in two things. How do I experience suffering and how do I untangle or work to overcome that suffering? Mindfulness gives us the capacity to develop or to practice what we would call in this tradition insight meditation. And insight meditation comes from uh, this word bhavana instead of meditation in early Buddhist language they had the word bhavana which means cultivation so it's a cultivating of this word vipassana vipassana means seeing into or through the direct nature of our experience so the deeper meaning or not really meaning i guess use of mindfulness is to see more deeply into the nature of our experience and this isn't philosophical, so this is where it gets hard. Is automatically, when I start to hear someone say something like that, 
to see into the direct nature of experience, I think, oh, okay, they're going to give me the like real teaching now. Like, what's the direct nature of experience, right? And it be can become this kind of like looking for the ultimate purpose or the meaning of experience. But really, what the Buddha is encouraging is more of a scientific examination of the nature of things. That our experience is impermanent. That sounds come and go. Do you notice that sounds come and go? Just like sounds come and go, do you notice that thoughts come and go and our moods come and go? All of the experiences, experiences throughout our life will all come and go. And that when we fix or we hold on to or we grapple with that reality of impermanence, when we try to find something to hold on to in an existence that is ephemeral, that's transient, that's changing, we suffer. And we also get lost in this identification that I talked about earlier. We start to feel like the disturbances in our life are happening to this thing I call me. You ever feel like it's happening to me? I was always told when I was young that the universe didn't center around me, but I always feel like it does somehow. Even just sitting in this room, if we could even take this wide perspective, we can have a moment of this insight. Is like, think about all of the unique experiences each one of us have had. All of the things that have happened to you and to you and to you, all of the things that have happened to each one of us in this room. It makes that human experience a whole lot less personal when I actually get to see this bigger picture that life is just happening who i am or how i relate to my life depends upon what i bring to it in each moments of experience when i identify or when i get lost in that identification with that stress or the worry or the fear when i make that a story about me and who i am that's when i suffer and so these are a little bit abstract, but really what we're looking into is just this question of like, what is causing, what causes stress in my life? And what leads to its end? And the thing that I love about the Buddha's teaching is called the Dharma. The Dharma just means the way things are. And I feel like really that the Buddha didn't teach the Dharma, meaning I'm going to tell you the way things are. He was just telling you exactly what we've experienced. Things change. We know things change, but we forget things change. <laughs> it's not personal that things change. They just change. It's not changing to you or at you or through you. They're just changing, but it feels personal when they change. And so we have to really look at using mindfulness as a tool to wake up. Carl Jung says we don't awaken by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. We have to look at the disturbing aspects, the suffering or the stress of our lives to get a better understanding of what causes and creates it. What are the ways that I argue with impermanence? What are the ways that I take things personally when they're not personal? What are the ways that I think that life should be satisfying when in reality it's kind of difficult to be alive? Ajahn Chah says, people have suffered in one place, so they go somewhere else. 
When they have suffered there, they run off again. They think they're running away from suffering, but they're not. It goes with them. They carry suffering around without knowing it. If we don't know suffering, then we can't know the cause of suffering. If we don't know the cause of suffering, then we can't know its release. So that word suffering is pretty strong. But we want to learn, I like using this kind of looking at this as a task. With mindfulness, we want to learn how to embrace our lives, vulnerable aspects, and to learn how to stop arguing with reality. So that's where I get into suffering or this stress. It's not, I mean, in part, it's because life is equally beautiful and tragic. I experience loss and pain and discomfort. But the real problem is that I argue with that. I try to make life or a life or an existence that's not that, that's not uncomfortable. I try to find lasting permanent comfort in an existence that doesn't have that on the roster. And so we have to learn how to embrace the vulnerability of our life. And I love the word vulnerability. It comes from the Latin word vulnere, which means susceptibility to woundedness. That being born into this world puts us in this unique position where we are susceptible to being wounded. The way that the Buddha describes this is this Pali Sanskrit word dukkha. He says that in life there's dukkha. And dukkha means a wheel, like of an ox cart, where the axle doesn't quite fit right. And so 90% of the ride around the wheel is very smooth, but then you get that little bump where the axle doesn't meet the wheel quite flush. Right? So what the Buddha is saying is that life is bumpy that there's this bump, that there's this kind of like friction or stress, this vulnerability to life. And so there are a couple things that he names I think are really helpful. One is that we can look at this stress or this vulnerability by looking at how our body ages. The body develops ailments, the body uh, develops diseases. You know, the body hurts, the body deteriorates over time. We can look at the bumpiness of our life in the fact that we often don't get what we want. It sounds so, it almost feels like someone's talking to me like a kid, but adults struggle with this problem too. <laughs> we don't get what we want, and oftentimes we get what we don't want. And that's stressful. And it's stressful to be separated from what's dear to us. To experience the loss of loved ones or the change of close friendships or people moving in and out of our lives. The jobs that we take and the places we move. And so if we take a step back, you know, what the Buddha is encouraging us to do with mindfulness is not to fix this reality, but to normalize it. In a way, what he's really saying is that nothing's wrong with you if this is your experience. The beautiful thing about the Buddha's Dharma is that when I came into this room and I heard this, I felt like finally for the first time I was hearing about a spiritual practice where someone wasn't asking for a lot from me. 
he's basically saying to take a step back is there a single person who doesn't come into contact with the insecure unpredictable nature of our life is there a single person in this room that's not going to age that's not going to deal with the difficulty of that aging process who won't get sick who won't experience loss who won't find themselves amidst conditions that they don't like or conditions that they can't get that they want all of us will experience this and part of mindfulness is just helping us to kind of normalize that there's nothing wrong with you that the disturbance is the path like we talked about earlier and the practice is to fully know this vulnerable aspect of life and to learn how to embrace to understand and to bring compassionate action to engage with it so what do we do instead this is the second task which is learn to stop arguing with reality <laughs> so one of the metaphors i like for this is it sounds a little bit abstract and it is and i think that's okay but i like this metaphor of they call it the groundless ground and the buddha says that life is groundless it's like jumping out of an airplane and we're falling we don't have a parachute and so we try to pull the chute nothing opens and we try to fly over to our friends that are skydiving and grab a hold of them but we can't quite get a hold of them there's this feeling that you're falling and so what do we do we try to greet grab and we try to reach out to hold on to something but there's nothing to hold on to and so there's all this fear and panic and there's all this reactivity and lashing out there's all of this trying to cope with that falling and then the practice is to wake up and to realize that there's no ground that the ways that we're fighting the ways that we're trying to force an unpredictable existence into predictability is the problem the ways that we react and so there are simple ways to look at this is like when i feel afraid for example what do i grab onto what are the things that i take refuge in in the world that provide only temporary satisfaction we're not talking about laying down and resigning to this reality but rather confronting it through understanding and compassion so the problem is not that i want to find some security like we want and need human beings need some security like we need friends and loved ones and caregivers comfort is also okay but it's when we reach out or unconsciously or reactively grab for things that end up causing us more pain right those are the moments that we're looking for And so this is the push and pull. This is what we call the pleasure and pain dichotomy. I talked about this a few weeks ago and talked about it recently when I was in Knoxville about the strategy of addiction. From a Buddhist perspective, all human beings are addicts. And actually from a neuroscience perspective, all human beings struggle with addiction. The vague chronic internal state of the human nervous system is anxiety and desire. One neuroscientist, Melvin Connor, said, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. So what he's saying is that we have a system that we're born into that wants to find security, and how it does that is usually through pleasure centers. When I feel the pleasure of food or the comfort of some drug or alcohol or the companionship of another person, that gives that reward and I feel safe. 
And so some of the ways that I reach for those things are skillful. How do I find some support in this groundless ground? What's the ground that I can reach amidst this falling experience? How can I find some community? You know, this is the path. The Eightfold Path is how do I find a way to live with integrity in a life where I don't have to? How do I live with this principle of non-harming and take refuge in that? How do I live with wise association and good friends within service in a livelihood that is benefiting myself and others in some degree? How do I bring effort to the path and mindfulness to my path and focused attention into this path? So what he's saying is ultimately the ground, the thing that we want to take refuge in is not all of the things that we reactively, reflexively reach and grab for, but how do we take refuge in something that's more supportive? Mary Oliver says at the end of one of her poems, she says something like, what do I want to do with this one wild and precious life? How do I want to live in this one wild and precious life? Do I want to move through it just trying to survive and just trying to get through and sometimes we need to do that and that's okay or do I want to do that with this commitment to living a meaningful life living a life that has view and intention and that has wise communication and action and speech that brings effort and mindfulness and focused attention. And so this is the Buddha's prescription, is how do we bring our awareness into each moment of experience and to live with more intention? That's the ground, that's the saving grace of the Buddha's Dharma, is that all beings are owners of their actions and heirs of their actions. The only thing we own is what we do. And so how can we bring mindfulness into each moment of experience, not just for the purpose of I can focus better or I can be a better observer or I can experience more equanimity, but for the purpose of awakening. You know, my awakening and your awakening for the purpose of healing and support and care and concern for ourselves and others. How do we learn to embrace the vulnerability of our lives? The Buddha's dying words were, all conditioned things are impermanent. Tread the path with care. Everything that we know and love is here temporarily. Show up for it all with care. Don't miss any of it. Show up for each moment of it, no matter how beautiful or tragic it is. And show up with heart. So... That's the aspiration of the Buddha's path or this Dharma. And he said this Dharma, when he woke up and recognized the temporariness, when he had this awakening, this kind of ordinary awakening I think we've all had, he kind of had this battle with himself. He said, why should I even teach this? I don't think... He says, if I teach this dharma, if I teach this path, it will be tiring and vexing for me. 
And it said that he battled with this for a minute and he had this compassionate voice call to him and say, you know, there will be some with little dust in their eyes. There are some people that are interested in doing this, doing this work and learning how to nurture ourselves in the moments when it's most difficult and to nurture each other's in the moments when life is most difficult. We just need to be reminded of that. Mindfulness means to remember the ground. There's a lot of metaphor around ground. Remember the ground. Remember this gift, that this moment's a gift. This moment's here. This moment will never be here again. And we're given some of these moments and We're also given this opportunity to use these moments to care for ourselves and to care for others, to remind ourselves that there's nothing wrong with us, that life is difficult, that we can share our difficulty. We don't have to hide behind it. We don't have to stigmatize mental health. There's no such thing as fucking order. There's no disorders because there's no order. Mental health disorder, you got a mental health disorder? We all have fucking mental health disorders. Right? So... There's nothing wrong with us. It's okay. It's okay if it's hard. If it's been hard for you. So how do we get along? You just got to start with that interest. They say that the first part of the path is to just make a decision that we want to be a good person. Something in us showed up tonight because we are interested in living with integrity, living with purpose or meaning. There's some reason why we're here. We wouldn't do this to ourselves if we didn't have that. You know, so that seed of awakenings in us. You know, in the Dharma, it has no form ultimately. You you could be a Christian, a Buddhist, it doesn't matter. Be your path, do your thing, but just walk your, tread the path with care. Practice mindfulness, practice compassionate action engage with our communities you know support each other remind each other that if something if you feel like something's wrong that there's nothing wrong with you and support one another bringing mindfulness you know i guess one way to call this form of mindfulness is it's ethical mindfulness there's got to be some ethical purpose for it So we use a lot of words, awakening or transformation or healing or recovery or whatever you want to use, but it's, there's got to be some ethical quality to our mindfulness. So, I'm done rambling. Uh, we really want to encourage conversation, discussion, communication. So if anything that I said tonight resonated with you or didn't resonate with you or whatever, 